1: I want to begin with the trade situation, the president's sowing confusion and frustration among fellow political leaders. Economists at most Wall Street banks, though, are barely changing their forecast for solid global growth this year as they estimate only modest fallout from a skirmish over commerce. Joining us to discuss, I'm really pleased to say, is John Riding, RDQ Economics' chief economist, and he joins us here in New York. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, John. Talk to me about that then, your base case for global growth and whether this trade skirmish and all the
2: headlines we see on the front pages really matter. Well, they could matter. And the problem is it's a low probability tail risk, but the tail risk event, if it does go badly into a trade war, um, it w- would have a debilitating effect on a global economy. Uh, the pattern of economic growth in the decades coming up into the last decade, the financial crisis, was that global trade grew at a multiple of global GDP growth. So global GDP growth was growing at X percent, trade was growing at 1.5 to 2X percent. So we were becoming more globally integrated. And now into that, we then start viewing trade with this more... 17th century pre Adam Smith kind of mercantilist view, where if my country is running a trade deficit, that's just bad. I'm I'm losing, uh, and, and it misses the fact that there are massive trade flows uh, going both ways. So I kind of liken it. I don't know if you've had this experience, but when a when a Brit first comes to America, and they try and exit a conversation. They say thank you, and the, the American says you're welcome, but the Brit has to have thank you supposed to end the conversation, so thank you, you're welcome, and then you end up missing your flight because you, 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 you can't get thank out you of and the you're
0: just, That defines John and me every, every that's, morning. That's <laughs> exa- exactly.
2: So the problem is who has the last word? So, so the U.S. does tariffs. There's a retaliation. Now, then what happens next? If that's the end of it, that's fine. But if the US has to uh, do a, you're welcome, uh, another round of tariffs, and then Europe has to do another round of thank you tariffs, then things can get uh, get pretty messy. So,
1: For investors, though, you don't trade the tail risk, do you? You trade the base case, and the base case is everything's
2: okay? Is that the advice you give to clients at the moment? Uh, I think that... Things are in, in some, uh, we're not in a risk-off world. I think, I, let's take the example of Italy, right? Like, yeah. Did do, do we plunge into a risk-off world last week? No, we we, we, we did. We had a, a bond market that was very short in the US and over at skis and looking for an excuse to correct. And, and Italy gave us a, a, a momentary uh, flight to quality. But do we have the clear drivers, the clear drivers, strong, clear profit growth? I would say the answer to that is no, so we are in a position where the markets can be buffeted yeah. uh, by, but uh, by these events and tariff announcements have been uh, uh, buffeting events uh, in the marketplace.
1: Well, yields have been capped. And I just wonder to what extent are investors being lulled into a false sense of security because we finally have some some real stability in, say, the Treasury market with the odds pinned down to around about 290. What the political concerns have ultimately done in Italy around the trade situation is put a lid on long yields in the United States, on a 10-year, for instance. And that supports risk assets, John. And I just wonder whether we are being lulled into a false sense of security
2: in the short term. Well, I, I do think yields are going high because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that the Fed has – appears to have more clarity and more confidence in the economy than it has had before in this rate hiking cycle so uh governor lyle Brainerd was in new york last week who we were there you know she she could have talked more about things that could muddy the waters cause the fed to pause she didn't she focused on the fundamentals of full employment and the unemployment rate going lower on being near the inflation target so the fed is going to be continuing to hike rates uh, in June, uh, in September, I think, uh, in December, and then I do think the yields are going to respond to that because the Fed has two instruments, like she talked about the yield code, but, but the Fed right. is going to be uh, reducing its balance sheet and putting those long-dated assets into the market at the same time as the uh, fiscal deficit is increasing. So I, look, we were looking at three and a quarter 10-year yield in our forecast at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year. A lot of people didn't buy into that forecast too much. For move, we were almost there a couple of weeks right. ago. So treading water for a period of time, uh, you know, is 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 not too you know,
0: surprising. The vector certainly in the right direction. We're going to digress here, folks. We welcome all of you worldwide, Radio London, as well, and coast to coast. And I make jokes about English football with John, but actually, this is really cool. John, writing, you were just in Kiev. Report on Kiev in the championship game and what did you see in Ukraine? What can you tell us about what you observed in Kiev, the city?
2: Well, you know, we observed a lot of police (laughs) and a a lot of National Guard. Uh, We we observed that the Liverpool fans were hungrier to go to Kiev uh, despite logistical problems getting there than Real Madrid fans for whom going to a Champions League final just seems to be, oh yes, we're in one again. So... Uh the neutrals yeah. uh uh seventy percent you book the tickets year ahead, don't Liverpool. you? Liverpool. Well, you know, <laughs> we could do a whole thing on contingent markets and how UEFA could uh, better allocate oh, God. Uh, Me and those. On the edge but of our seats. but but away from the football and the very dubious behaviour of Sergio Ramos uh, 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 towards Mohamed Salah and it turns out to, to the goalkeeper Carrius as well. Um, away yeah. from that, you know, here is a country that's divided. Um, you know, with uh, the uh, Crimea, the the West, the uh, 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 West Ukraine on, on the one hand uh, being uh, independent and then the East, the Crimea, is sort of being under uh, yeah. Russian occupation. Yet the, the, the country goes on. The biggest football team, by the way, uh, uh, Donat Shakhtar, um, has moved out of the West. Can't even play in its home stadium yeah. because uh, well, uh, uh, they've had to move to uh, well,
1: Western Ukraine. Just for the record, you brought this up, Tom. You did this. No, I think it's actually –
0: it's interesting going into the World Cup, which let's be honest, within the Bloomberg World folks, is a huge, huge deal. How big a deal is it that America's not in the World Cup? I bust John's chops about Italy, but America's not there either, right?
2: Well, I I think it was – first of all, it's surprising because America has a a relatively straightforward – Uh, path uh, to getting into the World Cup in qualifying compared to any given country uh, in Europe. So uh, it it was pretty pretty poor performance, but it has shaken up uh, the uh, fundamentals of uh, soccer uh, in the U.S., um, and it's going to continue to do so, but um, right. uh, whether it will reduce eyeballs on screens, I, I don't think so. It's a um, you know it it's a global uh, sport. But but just one moment. Going back to the Ukraine, you know, one of the interesting things I learned: it's the third uh, highest coder country after the U.S. and and, and India. There's a lot of a uh, lot of coders uh, live uh, in stuff. the Ukraine. Computer stuff.
0: Okay, well, thank you, John. Writing with an update there on the World Cup, with, uh, Thanks, including John. the U.S. not going there. There's other other nations that will not be there as well.
1: It's going to weigh on credit volume, <clears throat> according to HSBC. You're going to get in the yeah, near you, in, in the near term. You'll get I mean, a heavy pre-football he, new issue calendar because you won't want to be issuing during the uh, games.
0: He, he was talking about Mr. Salah. I got to be honest. I got to get up to speed on that because I have no idea what he's we'll, talking we'll do, about.
1: We'll do that in a commercial break, Tom. Don't I'll worry. do that.
0: Okay.
3: Uh, Tom, you remember the yes, just uh, yesterday we got the uh, Supreme Court ruling having to do with the case Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado yes. Civil Rights Commission, and of course this had to do with the baker. Uh, who refused to decorate a wedding cake for two men uh, because he said that uh, he has religious objections to same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. Well, here to tell us more about this ruling is Bloomberg's own uh, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter, Kimberly Robinson. Kimberly, a pleasure to talk to you. Tell us about this case, and is this considered a narrow ruling, or is this something that will be applied on a wider basis?
4: Well, the ruling was expected to come down as a 5-4 decision uh, given the, um, you know, the, the clash at issue here between First Amendment rights and uh, anti-discrimination laws. But in fact, the court came down 7-2. Um, but it's really a narrow ruling that is really confined to the facts of this case. And so I don't expect this, court, this decision to really have a broader impact. Uh, there are several cases, though, waiting in the wings that could have a bigger impact.
3: Such as what?
4: Well, the court on Thursday will consider whether or not to take up the case of a Washington florist who similarly refused to make flower arrangements for a same-sex wedding because she had religious objections. And if the court takes this case, um, it has the potential to have a much bigger impact because some of the problems that the court found uh, with this most recent case, Master P- Cake shop are not present in this uh, Washington Forest case.
3: Such as what? What are, what is different about different about this?
4: Well, one of the problems that the court had uh, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was that it said you know there may be times when uh, religious objections have to give way to anti-discrimination laws, but the court decided not to look into that question because it said no matter what the ultimate outcome is. The commission in Colorado, yeah. who considered the issue below, considered it, showed some, some religious hostility. And so it kicked the case back uh, to the state to to do yeah. a do-over.
0: Am I correct in that this is an incredibly busy June for you and Greg store? That this is just crazy? It, it is a very...
4: Very busy June. June is typically the busiest month for the yeah. Supreme Court any term. But this term, not only do we have a large number of cases still outstanding, but just the the impact that these cases uh, could have is, is is potentially blockbuster. Which one are and you so, looking at
0: more? I mean, you're the grizzled pro here. The rest of it's the blur. Which is the case you're really focused on?
4: I think the case that has the biggest potential to make the largest impact are two partisan gerrymandering cases, one out of Wisconsin and one out of Maryland. And that could just drastically change the way the state legislatures draw voting districts. Uh, I mean, even, though, even,
0: even going to the midterm elections, that could be an adjustment?
4: Well, that's what I was just about to say, was that importantly, though, these cases are likely come too late to have an impact for the 2018 mm-hmm. election. But we're looking really for uh, 2020. And then again... At, after the 2020 census, um, all the elections to follow that. So it won't have an immediate impact, but will have a pretty drastic impact uh, depending on how the court comes out.
3: Well, you know, uh, one of the things that we've got to uh, watch is, you know, the challenges to all these things. And I'm, and I'm wondering, Kimberly, just to go back to the, uh, the, um, the Baker uh, case and uh, making uh, products and offering services for same-sex marriages, um, is there a likelihood that there's going to be any kind of uh, organized uh, rebuttal to this?
4: Uh you you mean individual continuing to uh refuse to sell services? Yeah, exactly. Actually, we see that across the country. It's not just confined to this one baker or this one florist. There are a number of wedding service providers who have refused to provide services based on their religious objections. So uh, this is really more of a national effort uh, to kind of test the lines and see how far anti-discrimination laws go and how far mm-hmm. uh, religious
0: objections and free speech
4: objections go.
0: Hmm. Kimberly, Thank you so much, Kimberly Robinson. Somehow I think we'll be speaking to her more. Yes, I do. Yeah, chain.
3: it's uh yeah. I, well, well we're, I, don't know what to say I should about say that.
0: we're hugely advantaged with Kimberly Robertson with us, and uh, almost on the edge of legendary Greg Store for Bloomberg News down in Washington. They've just got well. Those gerrymandering experience. cases is also
3: going to be very important. Uh, see how quickly they get resolved.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there we are. and It's it's four, five, six, eight, ten decisions, and, and part of it. Uh, being the future makeup of the court, which is not really a June issue, but there it is as we go to the midterms and certainly to 2020 uh, as well. It is good to catch up with Gene Munster. Legendary Piper Jaffrey and of course with Luke Ventures. All right now, Gene, you're at the Apple meeting and I guess you saw it as well. Explain in English the media divide placed between Apple and the rest of Silicon Valley. When you see those articles, when you hear those thoughts, what's it mean that it's Apple versus them?
5: So Apple doesn't make or Apple makes their money on selling hardware and so that's that's their perspective the them is facebook and google and they make their money on selling data and tim cook has said this in the past is uh don't make your money by selling you the user out That divide was never more clear than it was yesterday at the developer conference. And so this is it's been a theme that Apple has been approaching for a long time. But I think they capitalized on all that's happened to Facebook and broader privacy and really emphasized that yesterday.
0: What does it mean for people that have an iPhone in their hand?
5: It means that uh, you can be comfortable that your data is not being shared or when it is being shared, you will be alerted more about how it's being shared. So they're building more tools to notify you where your data is going. They're also uh, putting in new uh, protection around how, like, for example, your browser, the data that your browser collects, they emphasize that there is a trick that most advertisers use to track where you're going around the Internet. They're going to remove that trick using Safari. So as a, as a user, I think you should um, feel good about using Apple devices, uh, knowing that your privacy is being looked after.
3: Gene Munster, uh, you recall the effort that Apple has always made in the in the educational world, particularly seeding younger users. Is what they're doing uh, in sympathy with that trend, and is this going to mean that parents are going to look more favorably on Apple products than non-Apple products?
5: There, there's a whole other piece to this. It's, it's, it's been referred to as digital wellness. So we talked about privacy here. But there's also the piece about the usability and too much device usage. And so this plays into what you're saying around what they've done with younger users historically and how they're trying to play into that in the future. And what they're allowing is you to be better aware. This is kids and adults alike, better aware of which apps you're using and how much time you're spending on your phone. And they're giving parents the ability to give time allowances on their kids' phones. And so, for example, a parent could say that they only want their kid on Instagram for 30 minutes a day or on the internet for an hour a day. And so I think that that's kind of on that process of of being kind of trying to, as as much as you can uh, and wanting a motive of profit, uh, you know, I think they're doing the right thing around device usage.
3: In that context, I noted that if you upgrade their Safari, uh, the Safari browser, right? This is uh, instead of Chrome, this is the Apple browser for the web. They offer direct links to a variety of add-ons from third-party companies that do things such as secure your password, but also make a big issue of blocking ads, blocking the tracking that takes place while you're using Safari. Is this going to continue and will other companies copy Apple.
5: Th- those third-party uh, security plugins uh, are available on Safari. They're also <clears throat> available on other browsers like Chrome and and um, and Firefox. Uh, what what is happening? The significance here is that they're starting to add their own version of those features as default in the browser. And so, um, if you're somebody who doesn't want to add those those plugins into your browser you don't have to worry about that as much in the future because those features are going to be essentially standard
0: gene you've been one of the great bulls on apple you've been a resilient bull through thick and thin and once again gene munster is right I, i don't know what you're doing at loop ventures on buy hold sell but do you have an enthusiasm for apple coming out of this meeting as you've courageously had over the last 15 years
5: we do. We we leave the, the buy, hold, sell opinions up to yeah. uh, the, the investor, but we are <clears> positive <throat> on this story, and we think that it is going to move higher. And there's a paradigm shift going on around how investors are thinking about the Apple story. Every five or 10 years, there's a new paradigm. The the overriding existing paradigm is to try to guess what the next iPhone is going to be and what the units of the iPhone are going to be in any given quarter. Uh, But we think there's going to be a shift to this belief from investors, or maybe I should say understanding that The iPhone is a stable business. It's not a high-growth business, but it's a 0 to 5% growing business. And you can rely on that quarter-on-quarter. And I think the evidence from the developers' conference yesterday would support that. And that's important because then it gives investors the confidence to have some – to give the – the valuation on their services business, a more respectful valuation. So we think uh, we're very optimistic about this story. We think that uh, this new paradigm well, shift around stability in the iPhone is going to play well for it.
0: Very valuable. Thank you so much. Gene Munster with a briefing. He is at the Developers Conference of Apple Computer as well. He's with Loop Ventures.
3: Well, you know, one of the competitions that exists on Wall Street at least used to be between exchanges, between, let's say, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Well, now that uh, at least the New York Stock Exchange is uh, part of a much larger corporation, let's find out if this kind of competition still exists. I want to bring in Adina Friedman, the uh, chief executive of the NASDAQ. Adina, thank you very much for being in our studios. Maybe just explain to people a little of the history of this sort of competition between the NICE and the NASDAQ, and how that competition has really seemingly changed because of the pervasiveness of technology.
6: Sure. Well, when NASDAQ was formed in 1971, we were formed specifically to be a competitor to the New York Stock Exchange, to kind of be the first electronic exchange, to be a way, a new way for trading to occur, and to attract the the new companies and the new economy companies to, to go public. And when we first started, the companies that came to NASDAQ weren't qualified for New York. Companies like Intel and Applied Materials at that time um, couldn't otherwise um, be qualified to list on New York. Today, it is very... Very much, um, every single listing on every single IPO is up for is up for competition between the two firms. But our two companies have changed a lot in the last forty years. So Nasdaq today is a global technology company that serves the global capital markets. We obviously use our own technology for our markets here in the U.S., but we also own the markets in the Nordics, and then we have technology that we serve over a hundred markets with our with our market technology today. So we're a much bigger company than than we were when we were created. And New York is now owned by the Intercontinental Exchange, um, a large futures exchange and a data company as well in the capital markets. So today it's just that we're, we're very much um, multi-business operations focused on technology and data.
0: I look at what you're doing and I wanna to go to the controversy of the moment, which is ICOs. What a headache. How are you, how are you, attacking this topic. It was a huge backstory at Davos this year. And it's it's way high on the radar. The vast majority of people, particularly with gray hair, are like, you're kidding me. And yet NASDAQ is in the crosshairs of this genuine enthusiasm, but real question about the underlying legality and proper process of whatever an ICO is. What are you dealing with that? So
6: our view is very consistent with the SEC's view that ICOs are, in essence, a securities offering. Um, so therefore, to the extent that they are being created and issued um, outside the spectrum of a securities offering, our view is that those um, that activity likely is not following the rules. You're not
0: going to participate.
6: Well, with regard to an unregulated ICO um, in a space where... The you know the the issue of the ICO is is not doing the proper job of disclosing information, not doing the proper job of, of registering that as a security. That's not a business that we're in or, or want to be in. To the extent the SEC comes out with a regulatory framework that um, then encourages these these ICOs to, right. to to work in a certain way, then we would consider the potential for the Nasdaq private market to be part of that. But that's. Uh, Totally speculative yeah. and and certainly right now it's uh it sits outside the regulatory framework. You
0: grew up, Adina, in the milieu of one of the great buy-side firms of all time, T Row Price. Your father was was uh, a senior senior and esteemed officer as T Row Price developed what they developed. I think everybody at the time knew what T Row Price was. And now people are sort of baffled by the NASDAQ other than you ring a bell afternoon every afternoon and a lot of people clap as well. What's been the biggest surprise of joining NASDAQ? about well, what Nasdaq really does.
6: Well, when I joined Nasdaq originally, I joined in 1993 and we really were an equities exchange. We yeah. we basically brought mm-hmm. buyers and sellers together and allowed Is innovative Penn companies to compete
0: with the New York Stock. Yeah, exchange we we now.
6: allowed innovative companies to raise capital. Today, we um, in the last, you know, since I joined in 93, we've done a lot of acquisitions and we've built out a lot of businesses that really uh, allow us to to play a much larger role in the capital markets so we are a technology company we provide our that we apply that technology to to driving trading in our own markets to providing data and analytics to buy side firms and then we also um, provide a lot of capabilities to corporate clients as they're having to navigate this uh, the capital markets today but i think that the thing that is least understood about us is that we are in fact a technology provider to a lot of other markets a hundred other exchanges and markets around the world rely on us to power their own you're, exchanges. Your
0: underlying wires in that. Is there trading for trading's sake? Is there too much trading because we're trading, because we're trading that we trade?
6: Um, I think that uh I think frankly, the ecosystem that's been created around trading, particularly in the United States, it's a very, very um uh diverse ecosystem. You have professional traders that are providing capital into the markets, you have institutional investors coming in, you have retail traders coming in. And that that confluence of all of that supply and demand is what I think makes the US markets great, frankly. But you do have to recognize that those professional traders are there to make money for money's sake. But they are also providing capital into the markets.
3: Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier the connection with the Nordic countries and uh, Sweden, a big investor in uh, in the company. I think eleven and a half percent. That's right. Um, what would be your position if a particular company can list in one of the Baltic or uh, Scandinavian countries? I beg your mm-hmm. pardon, um, and would like a listing in the Nasdaq. And I'm thinking here about the big changes in medical uh, and recreational marijuana and the ability to tap capital markets?
6: So uh, not not focusing specifically on that particular industry, uh, the Nordic countries have a very vibrant capital markets um, as well. So in fact, in the last two years, we've had 100 new companies list on, on our markets in the Nordics. And so it's either Sweden, um, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, and the three Baltic countries. Um, so we have actually had about 100 companies each year in the last two years come to the markets. It's a very vibrant, um, vibrant market itself, but there are certain companies that might choose to go To the Nordics, as opposed to coming to the United States, we've had some non-Nordic companies come and choose to list on the Nordic uh, markets. And then there are other Nordic companies that choose to come to the U.S. because they want to tap a a more global trading environment and a global investor base.
3: Do you have any uh, thoughts about uh, the trade wars that seem to have broken out between the United States and our allies, and whether this is affecting a uh, foreign business perspective when it comes to investing in the United States, since you have such a large representation of foreign investors?
6: Yeah, I, I think the first thing I would say is that we certainly are a proponent of global trade. And I think that it is um, a challenge when you have it's kind, of, kind of these new contentious relationships um, at a macro level in terms of just maintaining our global business. I think that the, um, the, the European investors today are, I think, being very sanguine about it. I don't think that they're rushing to decisions or conclusions about it. Mm. I think that they're they're making the right decisions in terms of continuing to invest in the right U.S. companies or the right global companies that are listed in the U.S. and vice versa. So as of right now, we mm-hmm. haven't seen a real shift or change in the investment activity or our attitude.
0: Adina Friedman, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer with uh, NASDAQ as well as looking at the modern technology development. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.